Good afternoon, podcast listeners. This is Rob. Welcome back to Michigan Bowling News, a podcast for bowlers in the greater Flint area and the state of Michigan. All right, welcome to podcast number 19, um, and welcome to lane 25 from the former Nightingale Lanes in my basement. I have a special guest here tonight uh, that's joining me, Mr. Jim Tuber the uh, proprietor of Richfield and Bees Bowling and former Nightingale Lanes. Welcome, Jim. Welcome, thank you. Um, this could end up being one of the uh, better podcasts that we have and could be very interesting to a lot of people as far as the sport of bowling in uh, Greater Flint and Genesee County and we're gonna touch on some high school bowling stuff tonight and uh, the business, how Richfield is doing, what these bowling is doing. So uh, this could end up being one of our uh, better podcasts. Hopefully we can get the word out to some people on what's going on and and uh, hopefully things will change. Um, things are starting to begin to open up except for the bowling centers. Um, Major League Baseball starts tonight, opening game tonight. The Tigers open their season tomorrow. It is uh, July 23rd. 2020 and we're just now starting Major League Baseball. It's pretty amazing um, What's happened in this country in this world with this coronavirus stuff, but um, I'm happy I'm very excited to have Jim come down here and join join me and uh, get to check out your uh, former lane here my bar um, So we're gonna start the show off today uh, I kind of forewarned him already and we've, we've talked a little before we started We're gonna start the show off today by talking about your dad Al, and what kind of influence that he had on you and or the sport of bowling and the business. Um, I mentioned it uh, to you and you, you knew this, I bowled with your dad before on Tuesday nights over at Nightingale Lanes for a few years and uh, I learned a lot from bowling with him. But um, you, you mentioned that your dad was the secretary of the Greater Flint USBC for 26 years. So he obviously had a huge influence on bowling in this area. I don't think there's anybody that's ever served that long on the Greater Flint USBC, right? You know, I think there may be some people on the women's side, especially maybe Jerry Shaw or Sharon Marshall-Shusky, but on the guy's side, and there, there are a couple on the guy's side too, because some of the guys behind the scenes were there pretty much the whole time with him. Um, the um, Don Ponsetto was active for a really long time, George Dolan, but they were more behind the scenes guys that people didn't George see as Dolan. much. But, I used to uh, bowl with George too. Yeah, I think George was the treasurer for a really long time. So there were a couple of guys. Al Cozart exceeded his service uh, by going through the, the whole, you know, they used to have an ascension program. Yeah. So he went through the whole thing, became the president, came back as uh, as the association manager for several years and continues to be active and comes to, to every one of our local bowling proprietors meetings and is kind of a liaison between us and them a little bit, between them and the senior association. So Al Cozart's got him beat. But in an official role with a title, um, yeah, 26 years is a pretty long time. Did he do that after he retired? No, he did that while he was working. He, so he worked for Chevrolet General Motors uh, down at Plan 38. Um, you know, 
the the entire time I can remember growing up, especially you know middle school on up, he worked seven days, ten hours almost exclusively, wow. and and then would drive to the office on Court Street and work for an hour or two and and handle that uh, that position as association secretary. And back then, there was thousands of bowlers in Greater Flint, Genesee County, compared to what we have now. And and considerably more bowling centers, absolutely. Yeah. So what kind of influence did he have on you as far as the sport goes, as far as you being a bowler? Well, you know, my mother was a coach of the youth league at Town and Country Lanes, and so that's where I started bowling probably at the age of six. My mother, Mary Hall, Kathy Callard, who's in the Hall of Fame, uh, Isla Cozart, Teresa Reed Lagness, they're mm -hmm. all people that you recognize and know their names. They were, they were the coaches there, and uh, my mother coached, but prior to that, just a little bit before I started at age six, my dad coached there as well for a couple of years, and it's my understanding that he was a, a, a past president of, of the uh, Greater Flint USBC Youth. Uh, it would have been, uh, um, well, whatever, AJBC back then, American Junior Bowling Congress. Back when um, we bowled in it. Yeah. So I know most of the presidents that came after him, <laughs> and I know of a couple of the ones before him, and then I went on to be uh, president of that association for 20 years. And you're not anymore. I'm not anymore just because, you know, my kids grew up, my daughter started uh, bowling collegiately, and I wanted to be where she was. And so it got to be a, a conflict. As much as it was only five or six meetings a year, it still was a challenge, and I, I remember the, she won her third consecutive MJMA tournament in Detroit, and I wasn't able to be there for the finals because I had to come to a board meeting. And, and for me, and that might have been the end right there, it's just one of those things I didn't want to miss. Totally, totally understand that. That's uh, part of the reason why I retired from coaching this year, um, because of the grandson, and uh, yeah, those moments you just can't get back. So back to how did he influence my bowling? He, I always, as a youth bowler, my mother was a coach, but I always listened to my dad. It's just a kid thing. <laughs> <laughs> One of our parents don't know what they're talking about, sometimes both. Um, but I, I, I always listened to my dad. And, and uh, even though he wasn't able to obviously watch me bowl a lot when he was working seven days, 10 hours, um, he, he, he gave me input and, 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 uh, and I listened to it. So I always consider him to be my coach. The other thing that, that uh, happens in the bowling business is lanes have to be certified annually to, that they meet ABC and WIBC specifications, now USBC. And so for years, um, my brother and I would do that with my dad. So we would do all of the measuring, checking for depression, uh, you know, we you have to measure the width of the the kickbacks, the depth of the gutters. You have to make sure that the the pin deck is level within certain specifications, side to side, front to back, and and then they check the lanes uh, in three to five places for depression. So we would do that with him every year. So I was on. There's not a bowling lane in Genesee County that I didn't spend time on because uh, we were we were the guys who crawled under the, you know, knocked over the pins and crawled underneath and read off those measurements, usually faster than he could write them. And, uh, and, we, and we got paid a quarter a lane to do that. Wow. And that's how I bought my first bike. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. That's and, a cool story. And uh, so I was in places like, uh, you know, F downtown Fenton used to be Fenton Lanes. 
It's now Fenton House carryout, and I think some of the lanes are still in there as part of the floor. The blind, uh, the center for the blind over on uh, Robert T, a kind of kitty corner from Curly, hers or Hurley, they had four or six lanes. Uh, Marianne had six lanes. Marianne, that's the bar over on Franklin, right? Yep. I knew about Vinny's, but it burned down about, you know, before I ever got in there. All right. So you listened <laughs> to the podcast where I was trying to name off all the old bullets there. Yeah. So you're, you're I, adding a few to that. That's I, good. Yeah. And I've been in all of them and it was cool. And, uh, you know, and uh, especially, you know, Marianne, they weren't focused on league bowling. And so you could tell that the lanes weren't heavily maintained. I never saw anybody bowl on them, but we checked them every year. So somebody must have. But, uh, um, you know, all of the, the bowling lane management lanes, Dort and Skyway and, and uh, you know, all of them. I've Panorama? Had, Panorama. I, that was my mm-hmm. second job in the bowling business. So then from there, I, I went on to, you know, um, obviously I knew the manager at Town & Country, Chuck McClung, and my mom knew him. And, and that, that was my first job. Chuck hired me to, to mow the lawn at the bowling center. Uh, and his personal lawn, so he lived about a half a mile away, and, and he had about a one-acre lot, and I mowed his, his lawn at his residence. And uh, the, the most memorable thing about that is Chuck had a riding lawnmower, but he liked to see the little lines in the lawn. So I think the entire couple, two or three years that I mowed his lawn, I did it with a push mower. <laughs> If you can imagine mowing an uh-huh. acre with a push mower, how much fun that is. But Chuck took really good care of me. And, uh, you know, um, I did it and, uh, you know, I don't regret one minute of it. And, and uh, you know, and to get there, so I lived two miles west of Swartz Creek. I used to ride my, my bike three miles into town to the bus stop um, and then take an MTA bus down Miller Road, all the way down Miller Road to town and country. And, and uh, that's how I got to my job. Well. <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of an all day sucker when I went. Uh, and then I went from there to being a, a porter, uh, which is essentially a gopher in the bowling center. But they're kind of an important person because they keep all of the, you know, they keep the bar going, the snack bar going. We used to have to change pencils and empty ashtrays and put out telescores and, and all of those things. So w- while it doesn't sound very glamorous, it's, a, it, you know, um, I count on those people today. Be, I did you know, that as well. Yeah. One of my first jobs, too, at Nightingale. And then once I got old enough... Uh, I started training as a mechanic and uh, you know I, I've, I've always been really mechanical so that part of the job I liked I, I you know 56 lanes I couldn't wait for a pin setter to break down to see if I could figure out how to fix it so uh, I, it was a perfect job for me I loved it if I could pick my job today I'd still be a bowling lane mechanic um, really yeah I, I you know that's for the same reason I love the challenge of you know what's wrong with it how fast can I make it run again because the people up front are tapping their fingers you know oh, yeah and and i looked at it as a personal challenge and i took great pride in figuring it out and being fast at it and uh i did so, not know that you did that so that was really my lead into the bowling business was was through mowing the lawn becoming a porter becoming a mechanic and then i sent myself to to uh, pinsetter mechanic school it used to be a month-long course in muskegon um and i paid to send myself there and when Richard Berg at Fenton Lanes heard that I did that, and kind of through my 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 marketing guy Frank Pep, uh, is probably how he heard about it. He you know reached out to me and said, "Listen, I'm building a bowling center in in Fenton in 1984. Um, you know, would you like to be uh, my head mechanic?" And uh, so, 
I said yes. And uh, in the meantime, I'd also went to work part-time at, at Panorama. And what a great place to learn because the Panorama wasn't doing very well, so they had a really low budget. So you had to you had to make it happen without the luxury of having whatever parts you needed. And uh, um, so I learned a lot, uh, you know, about all the different things that could go wrong with a with a pin setter. Just as an example, we used to we did a lot of preventive maintenance in the bowling business in the in the summertime on the pin setters. We would pretty much disassemble them, and lube and oil and clean and reassemble them. The the turret, which was the you know it distributes the pins into the 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 bucket, is one of the big parts there. And and so working at town and country, I learned how to do that stuff. So when I went to Panorama, it was on me to do it on my own. I didn't have a team of guys working with me, and, and I learned that there were five or six things that could make that turret bind, not just one or two, uh, because on many of them, it, it, uh, you know, it took five or six attempts to get them to work right, but it was a great learning opportunity, and uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of where I got started, and then when I got to Fenton Lanes, before we even opened, um, you know, Richard and I obviously had been working together, and they, they had bought uh, used, remanufactured pin setters. So when we opened there, opening night, we, we had 24 lanes going, the first time the pin setters had really ran. I mean, so the guys installed them, they turned them on, they made sure the motors all came on and stuff. But they had never really ran and set pins since they came out of the last place they came from. And... Uh, so, uh, you know, and we've got a grand opening and we've got food and one line after another is breaking down and I'm going from one to another, just figuring out what it took to make it work. So, again, for me, it was great fun. What a great <laughs> uh, experience. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was. So, um, and before we even opened, you know, Richard and I kind of took a liking to each other and, and he basically said, here's the deal you know you get me going you get this mechanic thing worked out and then I'm gonna make you the manager and so uh, you know after one year I became the manager and uh, that's really how I got into the bowling business more than you know I, I mean I was you know I got introduced obviously by my parents through bowling but they really didn't have an impact on getting me a, the job or anything other than you know see that's why you're here I did not know that I really thought that your dad influenced you getting into the business it was Richard Berg Richard well Richard hired well Richard hired me for my second job I did and then not know that and then uh, Sorensen Gross a local construction company built Richard's bowling center mm -hmm. and and uh, one of the brothers uh, who uh, um, came to Richard uh, you know a year and a half later and said listen the you know a friend of mine has a bowling center over on Center Road he wants to sell it why don't we go in and become partners and so then Richard came to me and said, hey, we've got this opportunity. Do you want to be a partner as well? And so I put together a company that essentially was myself, my dad, my father-in-law, and a couple of his friends, and, and we purchased 25% of the stock um, in, in Bees Bowling Center. And then I went on to, I moved to Bees in, in, uh, in 1986 when we bought it, and, and I became the general manager there as uh, part of our group and over 86. the years I didn't realize you bought that in 86 1986 it was built in 1980 and we bought it in 1986 okay I was guessing at uh, on my podcast that it was built in 1979 galaxy was built in 1979 okay they had the first generation synthetic lanes the same lane as we did um, essentially uh, I didn't realize you, you guys uh, got that in 86 Wow hmm. that's right when uh, when I was getting serious about bowling too. 
right yeah. over there. At, so at Patty Kelly was the youth coach. I don't know if Loretta, I don't think Loretta was working for us then at that time, but she obviously had been the youth director at, at Bees Bowling Center, uh, the uh, former secretary of the... See, I graduated uh, in 86, so I was bowling at Bees in 83, 84 time frame when Loretta, was Loretta and Patty yeah. yep. were the youth coaches over there at that time. And I thought she was still the youth coach. 86 might have been the year we moved back over to Nightingale. And Grace Blackburn was running mm -hmm. right. the program and, there. Yeah, and I had moved, I moved to Nightingale at some point in my teenage years. Uh, once I met, uh, you know, basically I experienced a lot of the same things you did. You know, we bowled in the Jerry Murphy Invitational Tournament, and so that's where I met guys like Mike Duff and, and uh, uh, Ricky Muncie, um, eventually Dave Gussie, although I don't remember him being on our trip. But I met all those guys at Nightingale, and so then, uh, you know, as a teenage youth bowler, I moved to Nightingale and bowled at 8.30 in the morning on Saturdays. Because that and was the good league for the youth. It, it was, and yeah. I became fast friends with, uh, you know, Lenny um, uh, and, and Mike Duff and Amanda Duff and... and um, so some really cool things came out of that as well. Yeah, um, yeah, those were good times. Uh, it's too bad that there's not more of that still around because look what happened with you and me and Tubbs and there's a whole bunch of people. And then when MJMA started, that was in 86 when MJMA started and you start to broaden that and you meet all these people from all over the state then and start hanging out with people that are as serious about it as you. Well, and there was a there was a, a term and organization prior to um, MJMA similar, um, and we and so we participated in that, and we bowled in all of those tournaments. They you know all around the Detroit area primarily. Uh, a lady named D Hoag uh, ran that one, and uh, Gussie can tell you the name of it. <laughs> My memory is starting to escape me a little bit, but also one year we were bowling the uh, the state tournament. Uh, up in Bay City at Monitor Lanes, and uh, we crossed with a team that bowled in the Ward Bonanza Classic Youth Travel League down there. And uh, we were bowling, and Amanda Duff was on our team, and she was playing fourth arrow because the lanes were like hooking insane. And they were so, and obviously I'm bowling with, I think, Rick Muncie and, and probably Mike Duff on the team. So Rick was a, you know, a phenom of uh, all sorts back then. And they were so impressed that a girl could play fourth arrow that they invited us to bowl in that Ward Bonanza Classic Travel League. And uh, so we went down there and bowled in that league for a year or two. And that was on Long Oil, and you know a little bit about Long Oil. Mm -hmm. And the, the league, the, the mean average of the league was 165. We had, I think, 14 teams that, you know, you all got shirts and pants and, and uh, Cecil Ward, who I believe owned a trophy company, sponsored the league. And uh, he was a character, he was pretty old back then. But we went down there and we bowled in that league and we won the league. Um, and uh, what I mean, what a great time driving down to the different Detroit uh, bowling centers. And back then in the Flint area, we had our traditional Sunday morning travel league. But it might not have been Sunday morning. It might I think back then it was on Saturdays. But there was also a travel league out in the Owasso area. So we I bowled both of those travel leagues and the Sunday the Ward Bonanza Classic and in one year I bowled in twenty six different bowling centers in league. Holy smokes! You know with and again to to bowl with a, you know the the high series in a in a league when we were bowling in the in the Ward Bonanza Classic would be six hundred you know one guy would have six hundred and Rick Muncie would shoot seven hundred. Yeah. Uh, you know what an incredible talent. Yeah. Yep. 
Those are good times for sure. Um, so yeah, the availability of that kind of stuff, and it's a little bit been replaced by high school bowling. If you think about it, we did really true. cool things there, and that, that's what's happening with high school bowling. It's just now on a on a much greater scale. So that's pretty cool. I, you know, in the the Jerry Murphy, the regional tournament. I mean, it's still out there. It's called Junior Gold in some yeah. some capacity. Yeah, the difference absolutely. is, when we when we had those qualifying rounds where you bowled in in four different centers to make the team, and and um, then we put teams together. You, I mean, you saw the gold in that. In that, you know, you met Tubby. I met the the Duffs and Rick Muncy and Dave Gussie and yeah. and and. Uh, um, so you know that's the gold that is a little bit missing now because it's a lot more singles oriented than team oriented. But the, the, you know those were great things, and that's the one thing we don't have is the qualifying and that. And they they tried to start it a couple of years ago an AAU thing, which might have got a little of that kind of stuff back, but it, it didn't last very long. I mean, you were part of that and had a had a yeah. winning team, but yeah. Unfortunately, AAU doesn't even sponsor bowling anymore. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool when we uh, we. Took a girls team down there to Virginia Beach. That was that was a, a really cool experience. Unfortunately, they don't do AAU anymore. So um, you're talking about junior bowling in the early '80s, right? So when was mm -hmm. it that you moved up to the adult league? I moved up to the adult leagues in 1983. And and uh, and I've got a great story to tell you there. A guy who really motivated me and kept How me focused. Uh, well, I, I graduated in '82, so I'd have been 19. Um, and and again, the the you know I was lucky, you know, to bowl in a time when we had five classic leagues a week in the city. Uh, Flint held onto their classic leagues longer than anybody, and we had some great ones. And the the fun and the competition that we had there that you know doesn't exist anymore today. Um, yeah, but, for sure. What's the cool story? Well. Our, our first year in, in the, was in the, the major classic on Monday nights at Town & Country, and I bowled with Dave Gussie and Farrell Cobb and, and Mike Mayfield, and I think Ricky, if I'm not mistaken, bowled with us that first year. And the, the second, it was a split season, the second uh, half of the first of the season, my team won. Um, we didn't, I think we lost to Ray Kearns in the overall championship, but we won the second half. And so, I mean, that's our first year in the men's leagues in a classic league, bowling on long oil. This is before short oil, and, and, uh, and we win that. And the next year in the rules meeting, JP says, well, who would have thought that Elias Brothers could beat my team? <laughs> and I was so angry about that because, I, I mean, listen, I had some pretty talented people there. And yeah, we were pipsqueaks, whatever. But you know, I did have some talent, and and I, you know, in some ways, and I shouldn't say it this way, but I hated JP for that. It it, it made me angry. It gave me, it fueled me with a passion, and I was never more focused bowling against any team than his. And guess what? They were one of the best teams in every yeah. classic league, and so we had a long time rivalry and. To the point where we went on to become great friends, uh, but still, uh, you know, it it got me focused, and and I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in my adult career was having somebody just uh, make sure that I had my head in the game. Of course, we all got fired up to bowl JPs. <laughs> yeah, your team, your team fired us up when you guys were back in the heyday there on Friday nights in the City League. Man, that was, those were some great times. We. 
I still say to this day, Sean will say the same thing, that roll-off that we had against you guys, and I think you guys shot like 12.50 and we had 12.40 or something. Yep. It was that really was close. That was like one of the best ever. Even though we lost, it was the experience was incredible. Those were some good times. And, and absolutely, and I and I yes, you're right. I remember that match uh, very clearly. And uh, what what you know, most if I want to remember things that far back, I usually have to ask Gussie because he remembers <laughs> all of them. Um, he reminds me regularly of things we did and accomplished. Uh, but uh, that one, you don't have to remind. I don't need him to remind me of because it, it was pretty epic. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. Um, Guess what? You've been talking for 24 minutes already. So uh, we're about halfway through this podcast, and I know we can spend, we could probably spend a couple hours talking about this next subject. Um, but before I leave this subject, you reminded me that uh, your dad had some influence on you, but your, your mother did as well. So, I mean, that's pretty cool to hear that um, your mom had some influence on you, because my mom had a lot of influence on me getting into bowling as well. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, and you know, as coaches, they were also secretaries of those leagues. So, you know, my mom was secretary of multiple youth leagues, and so on Saturday mornings, you know, back then it was all done by hand. So every every bowler had a page. You wrote their scores. You wrote their total. You wrote whatever else was on there. You did that for every bowler. Then you did it for the team, and then you went back when you were done and typed on on a ditto back. Then. You had to retype the whole sheet yeah, so every that. single week, and that and so I did that. yeah, so I learned that part of the business by by ultimately my mom passed that on to us kids as soon as we were capable of doing it, we were doing it, and so I got to learn that part of the business and and the that skill as yeah. well. Um, that was uh, for me when I joined the travel league. It was Linda Becklick. I became the the secretary of the travel league and. And I did that uh, by hand. You went and wrote down all those scores. You kept track of that. And I had a typewriter. My parents bought me a typewriter. And I had to type that sheet. And if you made a mistake on it, you had to redo the whole darn thing. Yeah. Because I, I didn't like to have white out on the sheet. Yeah, it, it wasn't easy <laughs> to correct. No. You had to make sure it was right. So, yeah, I learned a lot about that, too. And, uh, and I still tell people to this day, like, statistics for me, like, I'm a nut about it. Like, for the high school team. I keep statistics on everything. I had spreadsheets of how many spares they missed, which spares they missed, how many strikes they throw. People are like, why do you do all that? I'm like, it's part of bowling. It's part of the game. It, I used it when I coached. Uh, I learned all of that when I was a kid. Right. That's cool to hear that you learned that. All right, let's move on to this next subject, which could take us for a really long time. Um, let's talk about the coronavirus, and let's talk about the effect that it is having number one on the game, number two on your businesses, because it's brutal what's going on. And I'm personally, myself, I'm, I'm really worried for bowling centers, especially in mid-Michigan, what's going on with them, because these people now are driving to other states to go bowl. And uh, I hate to see that. Um, so let's talk about what do you think the effect of the coronavirus is going to have on the game itself? Well, you, you know, just to give a little recap, bowling, I got into the business in 1986, but league bowling in general has been on a decline since the early 1980s. So the entire 34 years that I've been in the bowling business, league bowling has been on a decline. 
which makes a really big challenge because back in 1980, in the early 80s to the late 70s, to, if you bought a bowling center, what, the beauty of it was, you know, marketing was comprised of opening the front doors. I mean, these things were were loaded day and night um, with league bowling. Most leagues were, were double shifted. Uh, you know, or most bowling centers were double shifted. I mean, I remember as a youth bowler at Town & Country, if I wanted to make up, you know, we were going in at 7.30 in the morning to do a makeup before I went to school. Um, you know, that none of that stuff happens obviously anymore, but bowling in its heyday was, was huge. And, and uh, I remember Nightingale having third shift leagues early in the morning, mm-hmm. and then bowling, like, was it a Monday morning league for third shifters? And then Monday night, 6 o'clock was the All-Star League, and at 9 o'clock was the women's all early. Yeah. I remember the, those right. days. Yeah. And so it, it was definitely crazy. And so that obviously doesn't exist anymore. That, you know, when women went to work, uh, uh, the, the second shift leagues went away because the, you know, being out until midnight didn't make sense anymore. And, and so the whole landscape changed. Um, all right, what were we talking about? The coronavirus. <laughs> ah, the coronavirus. Um, <laughs> so, you know, during the the the, the last uh, economic downturn, depression, whatever you want to call it, the housing crisis that started back in two thousand and eight, and and took until about two thousand and fourteen to kind of really right itself, we we saw a lot of bowling centers close, and and what was interesting was that even after things got better in two thousand and fourteen, I mean they were substantially better and continued to get better every year after that. In the in the la- in the four years since that, we continue to see bowling centers close every summer, um, you know. And uh, so my concern now is exactly what you said. We're, we're going to have a lot of bowling centers that are not going to make it through this because when when we are allowed to reopen, um, it's not going to be business as usual. And you know, bowling is is. Uh, it's a very social sport. I mean, it took me a long time to figure that out because I was heavily focused on the classic leagues where it was really about the competition. But the real gold in bowling is is the socialization, you know, being able to sit with a group of guys, have a couple of beers maybe, and, and chat about Monday Night Football or whatever else. And, and, and you know, it gives you a reason to do that without having to go sit at a bar and just where the, the focus ends up being drinking. So... Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, this way, it, it, you know, and, and then the competition, uh, you know, we, we like competition, so that just adds to the value, but the, you know, it's really the socialization. So if we have to start sitting six feet apart from our teammates, it's going to make it much more difficult to communicate. Um, and it's really going to take away from the game, not to mention that there, you know, there's a significant segment of the market right now, I believe that, that wouldn't even consider going into a bowling center because they wouldn't feel like they could with, you know, be safe. Um, you know, we can certainly socially distance and I think we can create a very safe environment, but it, you know, if you, if you watch the right news channels, you won't be convinced of that. And, and I don't know what's right or wrong, <laughs> but I just know that half of the market is not going to be ready to restart when we're allowed to open. So, so it's going to change. And, um, you know, if we had bowling centers going out of business when they were able to put in every person they could possibly fit in there, what are they going to do when they can only put half or a quarter? In, in Illinois right now, I believe they can only put 50 people at a time in a bowling center. And, and the, the crazy thing about that is it doesn't matter if you have 12 lanes like Rollaway where 50 people would almost be full or 48 lanes like Richfield where 50 people isn't even enough to cover the light bill. 
Um, and so that's the challenge that our industry is seeing is, is uh, you know, a, a playing field that's not very good. And, uh, you know, one of the things uh, I'm going to learn over the course of this summer is, you know, what does it cost me to close for months at a time? And, you know, maybe in the future, some guys will figure out that, you know what, I lost less money by being closed than I did by being open. And, and that'll further erode some of what's going on. I mean, our summers are pretty busy and we do some really important things in the summer, the Kersley Bowling Camp being one of them. Um, you know, the, the high school bowlers and, and the, the middle school bowler, you know, the eighth grade middle school bowlers that are going to be freshmen are, are coming in and, and working on their skill, on their game. And for, for me, in my opinion, that's an important developmental part. It, it's how we get kids hyper-focused um, on, on the sport of bowling and, and how we, you know, uh, get them to the next level. It's how we get uh, championship bowling teams out of Kersley and, and um, uh, all sure. those, you know, Richfield, uh, you know, oh, yeah. I, I love the, the championship banners up there, but, you know, we don't have them just from Kersley. I mean, we, we've got, you know, one from uh, Genesee. We've got one from Mount Morris. We've got uh, one from Bentley. Um, you know, yeah. so to have four different school systems have a state champion out of our bowling center, I'm pretty proud of that. But obviously, you know, uh, what Kersley has accomplished is incredible. And, and it, you know, for us, it just seems like it, it's static. But, um, it, you know, you go around the state and talk to somebody about what that bowling team has accomplished. Uh, it's incredible feat. Um, and, and one thing we know in, in, uh, in this business is high schools love state championships. That's for sure. Mine definitely did. Um, but it sounds like your feeling is the same as mine that uh, this is this is devastating to proprietors to Bolinelli's. So from the business side of this, this is this is going to be brutal, even when you're allowed to reopen because it's July 23rd and we're still since the middle of March we haven't had any bowling. Um, so if they tell you, hey August 1st you can reopen but you can only use every other lane. How do they expect bowling centers to survive? We, we're not going to be able to cover our costs. And, you know, for a lot of those, a lot of guys out there that maybe have been struggling, and, and you know, I'm active in, in the trade association throughout the state, so I know a lot of bowling proprietors. You know, for a lot of them, their bowling center has turned into a job, and that's all it is. I mean, they make enough money that they could make if they went down and worked at, at you know, the hardware or wherever else, but they're, it's no longer... Uh, a retirement package for them like like maybe you know certainly that was my thoughts when I got into the businesses listen I'll work hard at this I'll pay off my bowling center and and someday maybe I'll turn it over to my kids or I'll, I'll sell it but it'll become my retirement um, you know I don't have a pension well I you know I recognized several years ago that it likely wasn't going to be my pension plan yeah <laughs> Um, not to say that we weren't doing good. I think we do better than most bowling centers, but still, it you know it, the, the game has changed and 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 things changed, and they don't build new bowling centers anymore because we you know if you build a new bowling center, you can't charge enough for your product to pay for what it would cost. To, you know, to build Richfield new would would cost about five million dollars. I I can't put enough customers in there, and I can't charge enough for a game of bowling. So it's it's a dinosaur. We're kind of stuck with the buildings we have. And uh, and even some of them can't can't afford to just maintain and and uh, take care of their properties. So it's it's gonna. It, I I mean, uh, unfortunately, I think it's gonna have a negative effect. Um, 
you know, and and in the long run, that that's gonna hurt. It's it's gonna hurt our game. I mean, the national tournaments are gonna shrink. Things like junior gold are gonna shrink. And when they, you know, there becomes a tipping point when you you can't make it big enough that it just doesn't make sense to have it anymore. And so, you know, like we lost the Jerry Murphy tournament and in, in our Sunday morning travel league, we're we're gonna lose some more key things. And and sometimes those are the things that motivate and keep kids in. Um, you that's know a, that's going to be the really the really tough part like you know this because you've got middle schoolers there was no middle school bowling this year so there's definitely some kids who probably would have went out for middle school bowling and caught that bug like we did when we were kids that would have came and practiced over the summer and then turned into high school bowlers and could have turned out to be a gym tuber who knows you'll never know because you're not going to get them now those kids won't come out. We're definitely going to miss a crop of them, and and the ones who are in, you know, my 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 both of my, my twins would have been eighth graders. I mean, I couldn't wait for them. This was kind of going to be their year to really. I mean, they were decent bowlers as sixth and seventh graders, but you know, at, at that age, middle school is when kids are really starting. To, I mean, leaps and bounds are made, and um, you know, we we I, you know we had a kid start two years ago. At, at Holy Rosary as a sixth grader, fell in love with it as a seventh grader. I mean, an eighth grader, he really put his head into it. And, you know, now he's bowling high school bowling. It's his favorite sport. I mean, you know, a kid who played basketball and baseball all of his life, played travel baseball, he wants to bowl. So you're, you're absolutely right. You miss that one opportunity. And certainly, you know, I, in my center, I've seen that high school bowling do exactly what we, you know, all those years ago when we really started to get behind it, um, uh, it, it, you know, it was starting to fill in our adult leagues again. I mean, from the time you graduated until 2010, there was a huge gap uh, where youth bowlers weren't coming into adult leagues. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, and then, and I say 2010, but it's probably more like 2008, but by 2010, I mean, I remember in 2008 looking around and I could see, uh, there, you know, teams of, you know, sometimes it would be five youth, five former high school bowlers on a team, but more often than not, it would be two high school bowlers and their dads and their, and I hadn't seen their dads. I didn't know who they were. I mean, they had quit bowling years ago, but because of their kids, they came back to bowling. By 2010, I look in through the bowling center and all of a sudden, every one of those kids is gone. And now some of their dads remained, but the kids were all gone because oh, wow. the economy was so bad that, you know, ultimately they couldn't afford to bowl in a men's league. And so, you know, if we fast forward to 2019 or 2018 and 19, all of a sudden I'm seeing that same thing I saw back in 2010, but on an even bigger scale. Our, you know, our Friday night league seemed to, to be a, a perfect place for them to, to uh, come into. And, uh, you know, our Friday night league is uh, the former Optimus and the Whitey Crane League, which merged together. So that you're talking about two leagues that used to be, you know, 14 teams apiece at least, got down to, to maybe eight. And I, I, as a bowling proprietor, I thought, you know, they're going to fall apart. I mean, this year I think we had 28 teams well, on, on Friday nights, and if 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 I looked down through there, there was an incredible amount of former high school bowlers. Um, so you know, payoff for all of the hard work that we put into all of those years of high school bowling. I mean, just that's one little segment of the payoff. I mean, 
you know about you know the benefit of all of those tournaments and all of the things that that have, have blossomed and came out of high school bowling at least in our area it's really been a phenomenal thing oh that's the other thing that scares me we're going to talk about that right now so high school bowling you were obviously a huge part of the start of high school bowling here in genesee county for sure um touch a little bit on that but the the thing that uh has me really worried is the MHSA is talking about changing the season. Those discussions are happening about when we're going to start, how long it's going to be, but they're also saying limited competitions, and uh, they're, they're pretty much going to say there will be no tournaments this year. That is going to be brutal because those tournaments are, are so, I mean, they're, they're great for the, the bowling center and the proprietor. They're great for the kids. They're great for the teams. It's the reason why we were successful at Kersley is bowling and tournaments. Um, so, uh, tell us tell us how you got going in the high school bowling stuff, and then we'll touch a little more on how the coronavirus is going to affect that. So the the uh, the state trade association for bowling centers, the Bowling Centers Association of Michigan, back in nineteen ninety five ninety six, I was on the board of directors, and, and uh, a guy named Ron Tomasoni was also on the board of directors, and Ron is from the UP of Michigan, and. Uh, many call him the godfather of, of uh, high school bowling, and, and, and rightly so, because I can remember multiple board meetings where Ron literally pounded on the table and said, guys, we've got to do this. And, and it, took a, it took a few years to really get the attention of the board and, and to get it done. And I can remember even one of the first meetings for high school bowling was held in, in, in the lounge at Richfield Bowl. We put together a committee to explore it, and that was a little bit, if we'd have had Ron's material when we did it, we probably would have started right then. But uh, um, I was on that committee and, and active in that meeting and nothing really came of it. But like I said, within a couple of years, Ron Tomasoni brought us literally a binder that was a manual that says, this is what we do in the UP, it works. And he, and he presented it to our board and our board said, you know what, it makes sense. And so Scott Bennett, who uh, lives in Grand Lake, Michigan, was our executive director back then, a former executive director of Big Brothers Big Sisters in Genesee County. Uh, him and Ron Tomasoni toured the state, met with local proprietor groups and associations and said, listen, we're gonna start this in 1997. You know, will you guys get behind it? And uh, so, you know, I uh, took it to, to, the, to the Flint area proprietors and I didn't have to do any arm twisting. Um, we, we had a pretty good group of guys, and, and clearly Jerry Doyle being one of the leaders, the, the owner of Colonial Lanes, uh, we, we recognized that, one, we could do it, two, it made sense, and, and we put together a, a committee um, and, and got bowling proprietors to start meeting with athletic directors. And, uh, you know, I went on several of those early meetings uh, with different schools talking to the athletic directors. But, you know, the big nine, um, uh, Kathy McGee from Powers and Mr. Young from Davison. I mean, again, they saw it right away. They bought into it. They knew it was a good thing. And, and you know, uh, as athletic directors, they got behind it and really made it easy for us to get the big nine going. And so in the beginning, in the first year, we had, I think, 14 teams, and they were all one conference, and it didn't matter what conference they were in in, all, in their schools, whether they were the big nine or the metro or the GAC or whatever else, they were in one conference in bowling in 1997 in, in Genesee County. 
Um, but every year, uh, like with middle school, every year we, we would add a high school or two. And the, and the more we added, the easier it became to, to, to walk in the, the, to the athletic director and say, hey, how about adding bowling? And then we would get bowlers saying, listen, I want my kid to have this opportunity. And they would go in and knock on doors. And so, you know, eventually we were able to structure it so that the Big Nine was the Big Nine conference in bowling and, and the Metro League was the Metro League. And uh, one of the things we did in, in Flint that I don't think you'll see anywhere else in Michigan was we, the proprietors, said, well, we're going to run this thing and we're going to do it jamboree style. Uh, we didn't know the term back then, but we said, you know, we're going to have all of our teams bowl together at one time uh, in the same place on Saturdays. And we to, to some extent, we still do that today. The difference is we won't fit in. We don't fit in one place anymore uh, because we, you know, we went on to add JV and things like that. But really, uh, bowling, um, it, you know, it, it took off very quickly. Uh, we structured it from day one uh, so that MHSAA would be able to pick it up at some point. So we tried to follow their rules as much as we could. Uh, so it would make it easy for them. And by 2003, sure enough, MHSA said, you know what, you guys have a good thing here. We're going to pick it up and make it a high school sport. And from there, that's that manual, which we reprinted as the Bowling Center Association of Michigan, we reprinted it and, and put a, um, uh, a big B for bowling on, on it, you know, like, a, like a high school letter. Uh, the National Trade Association basically took that manual and did the same thing across the United States. And for, for a really long time, uh, years and years, bowling was the fastest growing high school sport across the United States. And it was because of what we did in Michigan that all started with Ron Tomasoni in the, in the UP. So really an incredible thing. And, and from that, we know that eventually, you know, things like Junior Gold came, apart, came about. And, uh, and uh, you know, um, I, I think it has dramatically helped uh, bowling. Um, it, it uh, the, you know, there's, the, you know, the biggest challenge I see with high school bowling as a bowling proprietor is we don't have anything as exciting as high school bowling in the form of our traditional leagues for these kids to come from because yeah, we need it, to start it's, that. It's, in, <laughs> it's, in, it's exciting. I actually, um, I actually proposed to our mixed doubles league uh, Anna wasn't too excited about it, but I actually said, you know what, there's a, an older crowd here in this mixed doubles league, and it's a Sunday night at Richfield. It's a great league. Pam and I uh, joined this year with with um, Lindsay and Joey and, and Joey's parents. We had a great time out there. That's a great league. But I actually said, you know, there's, it's an older crowd, and it's my wife, for one, averaged about 210 her first game and about 200 her second game and about 160 her last game. We get we get tired out when it gets <laughs> towards the end. It's not just her, it's me as well. But um, I said, why don't we look at the the way high school bowling does a competition on a on a four person team? We could do two Baker games in a competition and then bowl two individual games. I think people would like it. I, I would enjoy the hell out of that. And the more you bowl those Baker games, the more fun it is. We need to start that. We need to do something like that. Well. <laughs> You're right, but but the challenge is the same challenge you see. It, it's people really like bowling three games. They really like the way it is, and and uh, as uh, you know, people don't like change. And it's true. Uh, so it's tough to get them to do that. It but used to be though, like three games, like you know, you were shooting for a seven hundred series. You get an award if you shoot a seven hundred or an eight hundred, or um, 
there isn't anything anymore. Like, so what? <laughs> and 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 you're you're absolutely right. Those were some of the barriers. Well, now I I won't be able to get my 700 award, or if we only bowl two games and two Baker games, and one of the, the barriers will be. Uh, you know, I might I won't be able to qualify for the All Star team. So there's a few people that may not be interested in bowling in your league now because of that. But, but but a lot of those barriers, the awards have went away. You're you're yeah. absolutely right. And so, it, um, it, you know, it may be a little more practical, especially in today's world where time is so valuable. We're I mean we're so much busier, and uh, bowling today. You know, when I bowled in the classic leagues, it would take a maximum of two and a half hours to bowl three games. And if I was bowling a team like JP's or Madden's or Ray Kern's, any of the good teams, um, we'd be done in two hours and 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no men's league that gets done you in two hours and 20 team. minutes. <laughs> you guys didn't stay around very long. <laughs> so <laughs> those guys were, were there a long time. You, you guys did what's typical. It was tough to keep five young guys together because I mean you know people are trying to figure out how to make a living and and uh, well the tough part for us to try to keep my friends together bowling was and I was included in that um, and you know what happened to bowling in, in the auto industry here in, in Flint there was I worked at Buick City there was 25,000 people working in that complex in the mid-1990s those a lot of those people were bowlers when they closed that complex, all those jobs went south. I have to commute to go to work, and so does all of my friends. So Bob Wagner bowling with us was working down in Warren and Sterling Heights. He could barely make it to the bowling alley by 6.15, and we started at 6 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was traditionally late every week, um, and I was getting in the same boat because I was having to commute to work as well. So, um, yeah, that, that that was a big deal. That Yeah. It, uh, uh, one more change we've had to deal with in the bowling industry and, and in, in particular in Genesee County. And uh, so coming out of all of this, the one thing I will say is, uh, you know, we've survived a lot of different things in this industry over the years. I mean, you know, losing 85,000 GM or GM related jobs in Genesee County, but we always survived it. We invented new things. Um, you know, in, in 1975, there probably wouldn't have been room for high school bowling. So some of those True. things created an opportunity, and, and over time we figured out you know how to do it, and we came up with birthday parties for kids, and and uh, you know last year between Bees and Richfield, but primarily at Bees Bowling, you know we did over eighty fundraisers for bowling fundraisers. So uh, you know again we we found a niche to fill open lanes. Uh, something that we could do, be good at, and and people love it. And again, it's one of the just one more opportunity to get people into a bowling center who maybe hadn't thought about it. And it's you know in some ways it's a way uh, it's marketing. Those are great fundraisers. I mean, I when I started coaching Frank, uh, he twisted my arm. He literally talked me into just try it, just once, just try this bowling fundraiser, and we did it. And the amount of money we made from it was like, oh my God, why why was I not doing that before? Those bowling fundraisers are great. And, and we did the same thing. We did a couple for Holy Rosary, and we begged them for years to, uh, you know, my kids went to Holy Rosary. So we begged them for years, do a bowling fundraiser, do a bowling fundraiser. And it was only when um, when they were talking about closing the school that that a guy who wasn't Catholic and wasn't, um, um, oh, what was his name, uh, O'Neill, um, Keith O'Neill, 
uh, when they talked about closing Holy Rosary, Keith came and said, you know what, we're going to do a bowling fundraiser and we're going to help these guys out. I mean, this guy isn't, you know, he, he belongs, he was affiliated more with the uh, Baptist church, but went on to form his own church, uh, whatever they created over there at Dort Bowl. But, I mean, he came and did a bowling fundraiser to help keep the school open, raise $10,000. And I think that was the first time we kind of made the radar at the school there that, hey, this is something they can do. But even after that, we could never get, get somebody to do a bowling fundraiser. And then my kids were there, and it's like Sarah says, you know what? We need a fundraiser for the class trip. We're going to do a bowling fundraiser. And she became the chair. And sure enough, uh, it, it went great guns, and, and they raised good money. And... Uh, without the corona, they would have had another their third annual one this year. And mm -hmm. uh, instead, you know, again, one more thing that kind of drops by the wayside, and you wonder, you know, will they be able to restart those things? And um, uh, but uh, you know, um, and and I'll tell you just just a little history. How did we end up uh, getting eighty fundraisers? And it was because of Nightingale, uh, because when I owned three bowling centers in a four mile radius in in Flint, Michigan. We got to the point where I couldn't fill up all the lanes on Saturday night with open bowlers anymore. And so uh, through my trade association, I had met some guys in uh, um, out of Toledo that uh, now live in Marco Island, Florida, and, and they did a seminar down there. And uh, they talked about bowling fundraisers, and they, they, uh, they had a fellow from Michigan basically uh, do a, a, a Zoom meeting in effect wasn't a Zoom meeting back then, and say, listen, this is what we do for fundraisers. And, and I immediately recognized that, you know what? It's an I, opportunity. I, I called Frank and said, listen, we, we are going to take, we're going to do something we never would have done in, in, in all of my years in business, and we're going to book fundraisers on Friday and Saturday nights in prime time at B's Bowling Center. And if people want to open bowl and I don't have a lane because of a fundraiser, I'll just send them to the other two places where I have lanes. And... Uh, Frank did a great job with it. Took him a while, but that's really—I mean—he's a, a great marketing guy in the business. Really gr good at relationship uh, building, and he's always believed heavily in that. And he's built a tremendous amount of relationships, and uh, you know, uh, now we're able to help out a lot of different entities uh, and allow people to have—I mean, people love it. They—they they have the same experience you do. I gotta. Uh, while I'm thinking of this, I want to go back and, and touch on a few things. That you talked about. Number one was the the jamboree style um, matches with the high school bowling. So I didn't even know that there was high school bowling in 1997, 1998. I heard a few things like I remember Scott Ward bowling and uh, what's the guy's name that bowled the back the back 300s for Kersley, Howard. Jason. Mm -hmm. Yep. Jason, Jason Howard. Howard. Yeah. Um, I heard about that because it was in the paper. And it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. They started high school bowling. But I was going to college at the time. I had little kids. I wasn't that active in bowling. And I was coaching um, t-ball and, and softball. My, my girls were playing ball at that time. And Tubby got involved in the high school bowling in 2004. His, his first year was 2003-2004 season, I think it was. Because this is going to be his 17th season. That's right, isn't it? Yep. yep. Okay. So, anyways, he said, "If you really like coaching softball, t-ball with your girls, dude, you got to get into this high school bowling. This is like a hundred times better than that." I'm like, "Well, what is this high school bowling stuff? I got to go see it." So I, I uh, found out there was a match at it was at Nightingale, and it was the the Big Nine Conference was bowling, and I remember I parked over by the where the pro shop used to be on mm -hmm. down by like lanes one and two, and I remember I opened the door and I couldn't get in. There was so many people 
standing in the doorway and standing in front of lane one that I couldn't get in the bowling alley. And I'm like, what the, what is going on here? So I finally worked my way through, excuse me, excuse me, and the whole bowling alley was that way. I couldn't get to the freaking counter at the bowling alley at Nightingale. I'm like, what is, what is going on here? This is high school bowling. And I'm like, this is incredible. I've never seen so many people in the bowling alley. I've got to be a part of this. So the next year was when Debbie approached me and said, hey, Bob's talking about retiring. What do you think about coaching? And I, the thing that always comes back in my head was, like, I couldn't believe the amount of people that were at the bowling alley watching high school bowling. It's the only time that we run out of parking spaces in the parking lot. It's, it's <laughs> incredible. Like, yeah, when we run the tournaments at Richfield, the amount of people that are in the bowling center, it's just incredible. People, I don't know that people understand what a great uh, thing that is for the kids, for the competition when you've got all of those people there watching. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, and if they take that away because of the coronavirus, that's going to really, really stink. Well, I, hopefully in our area we'll be able to convince them to do something different. You know, mo a lot of the conferences across the state, probably the vast majority, do single matches. Yeah. But it's not the same. And, you know, one of the things we do in, in, in uh, Flint and Genesee County, and we've done it since 1997, and uh, I should have brought a statistic of how much money we've given away to scholar in scholarships to graduating seniors. But we've, we've done that since day one. Um, and... Um, you know, we give away on average uh, about $27,000 a year in scholarships to high school seniors. And part of the way we fund that is with all of those people that come to watch their kids or grandkids or whoever else bowl, we charge admission like other high school sports. Because we run it, that money comes back to the conference. And, and essentially, we give it away in the form of scholarships. And, and uh, we're over a half a million dollars now that we've given away to, to graduating seniors in the form of scholarships. And, and um, that is a really cool thing. I, you know, you I'm, do. And, and we're able to do that because of the Jamboree style format. And, and you know, I mean, you see the gold in it above and beyond that. There's multiple other things that come out of it. It's better for the bowling centers. It's better for the excitement of the sport. You know, how, how exciting is two teams bowling down on 47 and 8 and nobody knows what's going on. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, the cool thing about high school bowling is we're not getting the typical athletes from the schools. And that's one of the things the schools picked up on early was, listen, we're getting kids involved in sports that don't play sports. And this is a good thing because they know that student athletes are better students. And, and it's better for their, their personal development. You, you, I mean, I'm sure you can tell about countless kids who, you know, found who they were through bowling. And I mean, they arrived as one thing and they turned into something other. And I know I've heard you talk about some on your, oh, yeah. um, uh, um, on your podcast. And I think Tubby had one, a, a kid who was autistic and, um, you know, my son's autistic and bowling has definitely made him a totally different person. And, and, um, and it had a significant impact on getting him there. It was, as a parent, it was pretty painful, <laughs> but but the long-term results will produce gold for him for years. Um, so it's a good thing for us. The other uh, thing that I, I remember you um, talking about, and I don't, I don't think I've ever even told you this, but um, Thomas Sony being the, the godfather of high school bowling, um, I'd heard the name because I was involved in high school bowling now for 15 years. Um, I knew that he was the godfather of it. I knew where he was from. My family's from the UP, my dad's family's from the UP, so 
I knew of, of those guys. And every once in a while, um, we had to compete against all of the, the UP teams. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, there'd be some teams that would come out of there that you, you never hear anything about them all season long, and then they show up at regionals, and it's like, whoa, where did this team come from? These guys are pretty good. Well, um, this year I actually had the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Ron Tomasoni Jr. And I can't remember the other guy's name that is the coach with him of Iron Mountain High School. Um, but we were bowling in uh, regionals up in Gaylord with those guys this year. And they started talking about how they run things up in the UP and how they run a camp every summer. And they have all of these kids from all these uh, local high schools up there, which some of them, they drive, he said, sometimes they'll drive like two hours yeah. to come to their camps. And it was like, wow, that's what we're doing with the Kersley Bowling Camp. We're doing the same kind of thing. You know, they have this camp where they do all these drills, and they get all these kids interested in bowling, and then the, it takes off in their high schools. It's like, well, that's kind of the same kind of thing that I'm doing at Richfield with the Kersley Bowling Camp. That's pretty sweet. And I didn't even make that connection with them. I had no idea that they did that up there. Um, but he was telling me stories like it cost him $5,000 to charter a bus to put all the kids from the UP schools on to go uh, to to regionals or to the state finals. And uh, they had to do all this fundraising, bowling fundraisers. They used their bowling camp to help raise funds to, to pay for the buses so those kids could experience that, so they could go to that. That was a, just a cool side story that Thomas Sony's, it's still going on. They're still doing it up there. It, it is, and obviously, you know, uh, he was the guy pounding on the table and, and he, he clearly followed up with his actions and, uh, um, he also was fortunate enough to own a couple of hotel properties, and so that you know he had some wherewithal. I mean, I think I think uh, to some of those meetings, he you know they they were able to fly in a small plane because I think he owned a plane even. So well, you know we were lucky we got the right guy who 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 saw the good in it. You know somebody who who really got behind it in the UP to develop it and get it going. But you know the 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 scholarship application that we use came out of that original manual. I no mean, that's the application we use. Is the same one that they used. Um, it was well, that. It was that good, and um, uh, it was really. So did he tell you guys about the summer workouts that he was doing? No. I, interestingly enough, and I'll have to. I, it was probably his son Pete that you were talking to. Yes, and it was. And, uh, it was Pete. Pete's involved in in uh, in our trade association and uh, uh, a past president himself. And I'll have to, you know, apparently they're not letting out all their secrets up there. <laughs> oh, you said that they Because I, I don't they, ever remember him talking about that. But yeah. that kind of stuff is, you know, the tournaments that you guys run, um, you know, um, I don't know if most people are aware of it, but the, but very few schools pay for for high school bowling. Uh, the, you know, it's, well, I sh I'll qualify that. In Genesee County... Very few schools contribute towards high school bowling. The bowling proprietors have funded this thing since day one. And the $5 uh, uh, attendance fees that we charge, we could use to pay for that lineage or to repay ourselves, uh, but we don't. We, you know, we, we bought in years ago, and I think Jerry Doyle and I, you know, were, were really, you know, and, and Pat Green out to roll away. I mean, the, you know, our original core group. I mean, we saw the benefit, the, the, the snowball effect that this 
the potential had. And then guys like you came along and proved us to be right. Because when you started running those tournaments where we brought people from all over the state and they were paying for bowling and they would fill our bowling center for, for eight hours on a Saturday and, and everybody would eat. And, uh, you know, we had to try to figure out a way to be able to serve that many people in that short of a period of time. And, you know, we worked hard to be good at it. You couldn't be perfect, but you know, we recognized that it was an opportunity and it was great payback for us. And then when all of those kids eventually uh, over the years show up in our bowling leagues, we're, you know, we're, we're getting paid back. And, and then, you know, as a business person to be able to give back to the community, you know, to be able to give 30 or 40, you know, our biggest, our biggest year, we gave away $47,500 in scholarships in one year. Um, it, you know, it's always good to be able to give back to the community. And again, it's one of those things in the long run it'll it'll pay dividends in our in our minds and certainly as a parent who've had a couple of kids go to high school whose kids accumulated some scholarship money every two hundred dollar bill or hundred dollar bill makes a difference um and uh so nowadays it doesn't even buy a book yeah (laughs) by the way we're over an hour into this um so we're gonna start to wrap this up a little but there's a couple more things i do want to touch on before we wrap this up um number one you just touched on it that you you recognize that I recognize that there was, um, it wasn't just me, Tubby, Tubby's behind some of that, but um, I recognize that it's a business and uh, there's, there's gotta be some give and take, but honestly, for me as the coach at Kersley, I couldn't ask for a better proprietor, uh, supporter for us because it, and I always tell my parents this every year at, at parents' meetings and, and hopefully whoever, if it's Shooty that takes over for me, they recognize this as well, that, um, no matter what it was I ever asked you for, you always you always were accommodating. And I do appreciate that because that is part of the reason why we were successful, no doubt about it. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, those tournaments were they were good for business. I mean I I, I own a business now myself. And uh, if you're if you're not making money, you're not gonna be around for very long. <laughs> and uh, that's what really scares me about this coronavirus thing. Uh, I'm worried about the bowling centers. Um, but the last thing I do want to touch on before we, we cut this one off, and most definitely i got to have you back because we didn't even touch on the history of bowling here in Flint. But the last thing that I do want to touch on is um, the rumors now that the high school bowling season may not start until after the first of the year. We talked about this a little before we started, and you said if you had some something to do with that that you may uh, – try to influence that to not happen. But there are rumors out there now that the high school season will not start until January for high school bowling. It may, um, you know, they may do tryouts after uh, after the new year and then the season start in mid-January and end by the end of February, the 1st of March. So you're talking six weeks for a high school season. It's It, it does not seem ideal at all. Um, there are rumors that there will be no fans. People aren't gonna be able to come to bowling centers and there'll be no tournaments this year so um, what's your feelings on on the rumors for high school bowling this year well I know that that uh, Debbie Alexander who works out of my office who's the commissioner of our local high school bowling uh, I mean she oversees the Flint Metro Bowling Conference for us has significant input 
and and obviously she always bounces that stuff off of me and you know my recommendation to her was listen you, you got to get you got to get a bunch of people in this boat because it's not one or two people aren't really going to be able to look at it and analyze it and figure out how it can be done and what's best for us versus you know what might work better somewhere else um I have a lot of fear that in Genesee County, again, we have more than 30 high schools that compete. I don't know if it'll be practical, especially when, uh, if I'm limited to 50% capacity and my leagues have to bowl every other lane, the likelihood that I'll have lane availability becomes very small. So what, what for us, when Debbie and I had the same conversation yesterday, seems a little more practical is, you know, maybe we have to take something that used to happen in one or two shifts on Saturday for Jamboree style, maybe we got to split it into four shifts so we can create that distancing, create some space. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it'll be a little heartburn for us, uh, but it would allow us to continue to have some semblance of what we had had. And, and so again, sometimes it takes somebody coming up with that idea that, hey, what if we did it this way? And that's the, the power of a committee. I learned that on all of the trade associations that I've been part of is you get a community of, of different-minded people together and you start talking about it and people start saying, well, it won't work because of that and it won't. And you go around the table and pretty soon you've, you've solved your problem. Uh, I think we could do the same thing, but I, I you know, it'll, it'll take uh, the leaders recognizing that they got to get some extra people in the boat here to really talk about a, a, a viable solution. And one of the things that, you know, I felt coming out of that was, yeah, we're not going to be able to fill our bowling centers with spectators, but maybe each team could get a pass for three or four spectators per match. And then the team would just have to decide, you know, how they're going to spread those out. I, you know, I've got kids that are going to be freshmen this year, going to bowl in high school. The last thing I want to do is miss one of their high school matches. You know, when I grew up, my dad worked seven days, ten hours. He he wasn't able to come and watch me play in sports. Um, I'm you know I'm fortunate that in most cases I can watch my kid play in every game, and I like to make myself crazy and try to do that. So I'm not going to like the idea of missing one of those matches. Um, that's going to be the tough part. Um, uh, but I think where there's a will, there's a way. One of the things we, clearly we've learned with this virus is it's fluid and, uh, you know, it's really difficult to plan because things change so rapidly. But, but uh, you know, hopefully, obviously the bowling season is right around the corner. We're going to have to start coming up with plans about how we can do it with what opportunities we have. We're going to have to work through it. Certainly, in my case, you know, our bowling center will go on and we're, we're going to work through it and survive. Uh, I, I hope my friends in the business can, can find a way as well um, to, to, to it's continue. Gonna, it's going to really hurt if uh, you can't run tournaments. I mean, that's, it's going to hurt your business. It's going to hurt the sport, the high school, the competition, the kids. Um, yeah, that whole situation is not going to be pretty. I hope that they can find a solution to this virus real soon. And if that means, you know, the kids got to wear a mask to go bowl, I've talked to the kids. They're like, hey, whatever it takes, we'll do it. We just want to bowl. Yeah, they're kids, and they're able to do a lot of things that maybe some of us as adults might struggle with or might just say, oh, it isn't worth it. I think the kids will do it. we got to figure out a way for them to be able to do it, to be able to do it safely. We, you know, Nobody wants one of our kids to get sick. Nobody wants one of our kids to get their grandparents sick. So there's a lot of consideration. We want people to be safe, to feel safe. And, and uh, 
certainly, I, I mean, I think we, we we're seeing that if we're kind of diligent about it, you know, Michigan has done pretty well. And a lot of times people think our governor has been too restrictive and I, I'm one myself. But in some cases, we're seeing the benefits of that. But I think we're also seeing, you know, uh, the last month are, you know, uh, the cases in Michigan seem to have plateaued around four to 600. I mean, that's probably just going to be a realistic number of what they can be maintained at when people are out and about, you know, going to work, going to the restaurant, doing, you know, being active. But I think it's a manageable number and, and hopefully it, it stays there or, or drops some more and we can get our bowling centers open. Uh, there's, I know there's going to be a rally in Lansing. I think it's on August 12th. Um, and uh, hopefully by then we'll have some better news and, and we'll, we'll, we'll be closer to, to reopening our bowling centers and uh, one step closer to a sense of normalcy, but uh, we're probably a few months away from real yes. normal. Speaking of that rally, I had no idea Bo Gergen owned a bowling center. I thought he, I thought he owned a pro shop, but uh, he's got some nice, uh, some nice posts out there on Facebook about Let's uh, open the bowling centers now in Michigan. Yeah, the the I think collectively in Michigan as bowling proprietors, we we've we've decided that uh, we need we need to our voice needs to be heard because uh, you know we've been sitting back and and uh, waiting and hoping and um, uh, you know we, we would go out in the marketplace and talk to people and they wouldn't even realize we were still closed and so I I think uh, Bo happens to be secretary of that trade association, the Bowling Center Association of Michigan or. I shouldn't say he's the executive director, I think, is his title. And, and uh, um, there's a second trade association in Michigan, the Greater Michigan Bowling Center Owners Association, who all the Flint area proprietors and uh, are, are active in, the Grand Rapids proprietors. Um, and uh, I'm heavily involved in that one. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think both associations recognize that, you know, we're going to have to become a little more vocal and make sure that... Uh, uh, we start to, to shape a little bit of our future. I don't want to end up like Illinois, where they determine that a, a, a twenty a twelve thousand square foot building and a forty eight thousand square foot building can hold the same number of people, because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. I I think I've actually posted on Facebook. It doesn't make sense to me that I can go to Menards where there's a thousand people in their shop, and but I, I can't go to the bowling alley. Well, even even more than that, you know, I I. Uh, uh, I've flown twice in the last uh, six weeks and you, you can put people side by side in a plane, uh, you know, compact, uh, all breathing the same air, all wearing masks and that's okay, uh, but yet we can't social distance in a bowling center. I mean, you know, some of our sports, some of the things we do don't lend itself to, you know, being safe, but we can learn to, to uh, not high five to not slap hands and and uh, you know uh, you know it really boils down to you know the utilization of hand sanitizer and washing your hands and and recognizing that hey let's not put my hands on my face I mean there it, it easily could be done our our bowling centers are certainly big enough and uh, and I think with what's going on in the south it'll be way more top of mind when we do get there and it'll make us more likely to be successful but. Yeah, if you could put all those people in a plane, and let me tell you, the middle seats aren't empty. Uh, if that can be done safely, and even more so, I, you know, they're not even checking anybody's temperature. I mean, how, how simple would it be to have one of those cameras? I went to a restaurant uh, where I had traveled to, and they had a camera. Everybody that came in, it, it, it took your picture and took your temperature and beeped when you were okay. 
you would think the airline industry was going to pack have, you in that tight would do that. I have that at work every every morning when we go in. They have a camera that checks your temperature. And and that's one of the things I'm looking into for my bowling centers again because I recognize there's a significant part of my customer base who might not be comfortable with the idea of going in a league bowling right now, and I've got to put put safeguards in place to make them comfortable. And obviously, while while people can be asymptomatic and still you know if they got a fever and don't know it, uh, you know clearly uh, you'll, we're, we're going to want to send them the other way, and that that's reasonable to do. That's a great idea. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, um, I'm looking into to maybe being a distributor for that equipment so I can get it out to more of the bowling centers. Because really, when we reopen, more than any, we need to figure out a way to get 100% of our customers or, or we're going to lose bowling centers. So, and so when do you think, uh, when do you foresee us a bowling center reopening? I, you know, I think uh, mid to late August at the soonest. Uh, again, you know, the governor, she's been pretty conservative on this stuff, so it might take a little bit longer. But I, I think realistically with what we're seeing, there's no reason we couldn't reopen in September in some capacity. Uh, it certainly won't be full on, um, but you, you have to start somewhere. And while I don't really like the idea of opening with restrictions, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it is what it is. We're going to have to do it. Half of my customers probably aren't going to be quite ready at that point anyway. So I, th I think it's pretty realistic now that we're going to have modified formats. We're going to do things to create social distancing. And, uh, you know, in my centers, my goal will be to, to have a, a, a segment ball from September to December. And then hopefully maybe in January, we can start with five on a team, business as usual, regular kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, historically, when people have left bowling and they didn't bowl for a year, a lot of times they, they didn't come back. My fear is if people go a whole year and they find other things to do because they can't bowl, they'll be less likely to come back next year in September when hopefully we, you know, yeah, it can be business as usual. So the last thing here before I wrap this up, because we're an hour and 16 minutes in now, um, you and I have talked about this, the Kersley Bowling Camp, which uh, has really turned into I would have never guessed that it turned into what it did, but my my goal was, my thought was, we were going to run that in August again this year. It's obvious that's not going to happen um, that first weekend in August, but if you're able to open, say, the end of August, we could still hold this camp in September, although we're not going to be able to use all the lanes and have all the kids there together. So um, we've talked about maybe doing two camps or a split the camp and do some in the morning, some in the afternoon, so we can try to accommodate all the kids that are interested because I'm pretty sure that there's a, a bunch of kids that are dying to get in the bowling alley and go bowl right now and you want to make sure that that camp goes too you've told me that so we are planning to run the camp no matter what if it means September or means October it means November we're still going to do it it's just a matter of figuring out when and how we're going to do it and you're on board with that. I'm absolutely on board with that. I recognize that you know the best thing you ever did with that camp was to start to open it up to other schools. And you know what a gift for you know I remember those first few years when we reached out to the Swartz Creeks or the Flushings and said, hey, you know if you guys want to come. And then eventually, uh, you said, listen, if you guys you can open it up to anybody. And and we did it last year and we saw the results. And uh, it's a great, you know. 
it's a great tool in the development of youth bowling and and those kinds of things are are the things that get people hooked and and give them the tools they need to go to the next level and uh, so I will do whatever it takes to 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 accommodate things like that the Monday night practice sessions and and you know hopefully there will be a, a window where we'll be able to have some kind of practice sessions again for these kids to to really get their their game going before the high school season and and if it's going to be consolidated if they're going to have less tournaments and less less matches then those other things that we do you know are even more critical for the development of our kids and and. Uh, Certainly in Genesee County, we want to see more state champions. And uh, um, I think we'll have a competitive advantage in this environment just for all the things we've done historically. But, um, you know, it's about building the, the, those teams for the next year and the, the following year, and we're going to have some setbacks for that. So uh, Yeah, it's going to stink. We've got to overcome it. All right. I told you this was going to take at least an hour. It's going to end up being an hour and 20 by the time we're done here. So, um I just want to say thank you for coming over. I appreciate it. Uh, I think we touched on a lot of really good things that a lot of people are going to like to hear. Um, I wish you nothing but success. I appreciate everything that you did for me. And uh, I can I expect to continue uh, coaching, although I'm not going to be the head coach at Kersley anymore. Uh, the bowling camp is a big deal to me. And uh, and I know the guys that help out with it, Scott Gruner, um, Shooty, Bart Rutledge, Tubby even got involved in it. Jeremy Jerveland absolutely loved it last year. So those guys are all on board with continuing doing the camp, whether we're head coaches or not. And uh, you know you're going to have to have people like that to keep something like that going. So um, I wish you nothing but success. I hope the Bolinelli, I hope the governor comes out tomorrow and says you can open. Because I know there's a lot of people out there itching, including myself. Um, and I'm an old guy. But I would like to get back to doing some bowling because I had a blast last year on that mixed doubles league bowling with my kids there's nothing better than that so um, thanks again for coming I appreciate it and uh, we'll definitely do this again have you back because uh, you've got a whole lot more knowledge about this game than me I learned a lot tonight I didn't know that you uh, started with Richard Burke yes a lot there's a yeah I, I listened to a lot of your podcast I've only made it through about half but, uh, you know, uh, well, I could correct that. I, <laughs> but it's also real. It, it's very interesting for me to hear somebody else's perspective. Yeah. So that part of it alone, you know, what were you thinking as a youth bowler back then? What are you thinking now as a high school coach? And some of the gold that you've given up about some of your coaching techniques and the, the things, that the, all the little things. I mean, certainly one thing I learned from you as a head coach was it wasn't one thing that made those teams great. It was the sum of all of those parts um, so many pieces to that pie that all come together and and you were were the, the maestro who put them all together I mean that's the the gold and then you know the time that you've given to be able to do that and uh, what you know we're, we're obviously really lucky the Kersley community is lucky and uh, and you know it's incredibly rewarding as a person so it, you know the the payback is constant but it's it's a tremendous amount of work and uh, it is it is but uh, yeah it's it's cool to have a little bit of influence on on the future and uh, hopefully a lot of those kids will continue on with the sport and even if not they they learn life lessons from yeah. from bowling I mean I learned a lot myself 
So absolutely, and the the impact that we can have on those kids, and that was one of the things my wife Sarah coached Torch Creek for for like five years. And one of the things I told her, and I tell all of my coaches, is listen, what you're teaching those kids on the lane is, is important, but what you're teaching them about life, I mean, you're you're gonna make you're gonna make a difference in their life, and that's the, even more important. So the real gold is how you can positively impact these kids' future. So I started these uh, podcasts when the coronavirus hit, and the reason I started them was because I was invited to the, uh, the uh, Gary Fisher's radio show. Right, I listened to that. Um, it was a great show. Yeah, uh, Megan, Megan, Tim was invited to the show, and I was invited to the show, and uh, was inspired by uh, Fisher, who um, one of the girls who bowled from my high school team, uh, Carly Griffin's dad, grew up with them, and I didn't realize that he was good friends with Lenny Gladding. It, yeah, it yeah. was weird how that all came about, but um, I thought it was a really cool way to recognize Megan for winning the state title because um, things are changing nowadays. Uh, the, with the internet, there's not the news that we used to have. Phil Pearson that wrote right. That there's no more of that. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to start a podcast where I could interview people like Jim Tuber, Bob Tubbs, and then I could start to interview kids who accomplish something like winning a state title like Megan Tim or maybe it's a, a bowler like uh, my daughter's boyfriend Zach he just started bowling two years ago he was a 140 average and and the last night of bowling before they shut the bowling alleys down he bowled his first 600 um, people like that that never get any recognition for anything there is no more awards he, he's not going to get an award he doesn't get recognized for anything so I thought if we started a podcast, we could start doing stuff like that. So hopefully when bowling starts back up, high school bowling starts, if we get a kid that bowls his high game or personalized series or a 300 game or whatever, I could have him on and we could interview him and, and get some different perspective, like you're saying. So hopefully this turns into something cool. Well, this is going to end up being an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not going to say anything else, or it will be. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. We appreciate it. I'm going to wrap this up. We're going to start playing the music here, so i got to shut this off. So uh, thanks again for coming. We'll have you back. Um, I have a feeling this might be one of the most listened-to podcasts we've had yet. So thanks again. Appreciate it, Jim. Have a good night.